this morning is a, it's a very packed um, sermon. It is full. There's a lot, that we, a lot of ground that we have to cover. Um, I'll hope to be done around the same time, but I do have one more page of notes than normal, so we might be in for it. Um, this is the third and the final story in the Abraham trilogy. If you remember back to some of the other passages that we've studied as we walk through Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 13, um, we had Lot and, uh, and his conflict with Abraham. If you remember that tale, and, and Abraham generously was the um, peacemaker, and he offered to Lot to take whichever side that he wanted so that there was no conflict between uh, his herdsmen and Lot's. And Lot makes the conscious choice where he looks over to the well-watered plains toward the direction of Sodom. They're described as Edenic. They are beautiful. They are flourishing. They are lush. It's the perfect choice. But it is away from Abraham. It's away from the promise. And he makes that choice. And what we're going to see this morning is the end result of that initial choice. But that was the first story in the Abraham and Lot trilogy. The second one was the chapter that followed immediately after. And um, there was the king Keterleomer, and, and he came and he abducted Lot with many others from, from within Sodom. So Lot has made the move toward uh, the city and or into the city. Uh, and Abraham is his gracious rescuer, right? He, he gathers his men and he chases this mighty king and uh, and he brings back Lot and his possessions. And so in, in all of these stories, Abraham is to be praised and, and Lot is kind of a, is to be questioned. His actions are, are not wise. They're not the path uh, of the, the covenantal wise sage uh, that, he, that he should be in following Abraham and aligning himself to Abraham. Um, so the, the contrast is that life's, he has this life of kind of apparent indifference to the promise. He prefers comfort. Um, he's a, a bit irreverent and weak, as we'll see today. That's in contrast to, to Abraham's life of, of faith and worship and reverence and strength uh, in his allegiance uh, to Yahweh. So this story today, it, it completes kind of the character contrast between the two of them, and it shows the ultimate end of Lot's choice in taking the well-watered plain, and it ends with Lot's abrupt ruin. And Abraham's growing life of blessing. That's the end of these two. In fact, there's kind of a period on Lot and a continuation for Abraham. So Abraham moves beyond chapter 19 and, and Lot doesn't. So um, this story is outlined, or at least the way that we're going to examine it this morning. There's three scenes that take place in the evening, at night, when the angels approach the city uh, and Lot's hospitable to them then what happens at Lot's home in the evening, and then the angelic warning about judgment and their encouragement to go warn any others, and Lot will interact with his sons-in-law. So that takes place at night. That's 19.1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, right? And, the, and those evening activities are described. Now verse 15 says, when the morning dawned. So we have uh, dawn, and then we're eventually going to get to sunrise through this process. So at dawn... Um, then the angels uh, wake Lot and encourage him to arise and flee the city, end up actually leading him out. Right? And then in the following scene, the sun is up and fire falls from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the concluding scene is then it turns back to Abraham. And you can see how Moses is using these as literary bookends. He, he'll return to, to Abraham actually as Lot's inter intercessor and God's favor toward Abraham even in rescuing Lot. And then there's that epilogue in the cave, right? a very dark uh, tale of telling us what happens to Lot. If, we, if it were left uh, in verse 29, then we would really wonder. Right? We would not know what had happened to him, where he went, what was his life in Zoar like. Um, but the cave explains it all, and it, and it ends the story of Lot uh, in, a very, in a very dark way. So that's the, the movement um, this morning. And so keep in mind that as we go through this, chapters uh, 18 and 19 are one unit, but they're not just one unit, they're one day. This is a singular life in the day of Abraham, and it's, this is the one that Moses writes more about than any others. In, in the beginning of chapter 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So we are talking about the same day that we were talking about last week. It's just that evening. 
Um, and, and what had happened, if you recall, is that the angels and the Lord had appeared to Abraham, and he generously leapt up, and, and he was hospitable. He provided food for them uh, in, a, in a very abundant way. They were refreshed. And then the two, in verse 16, then the two men arose from there and looked towards Sodom, and, and Abram stands, and he sends them on their way towards, here's where, here's where it is, here's the journey, here's how you go over to Sodom. No, they probably didn't actually walk the whole way <laughs> with this being the same day and the distance between where Abraham was and Lot was. They probably used some uh, angelic means to get to where they needed to go. So this is the same day. And remember, the Lord remained behind to speak to Abraham um, because he had made promises to Abraham and he wanted to include him in what was, in what was going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham interceded for Lot and, and for the righteous in the city. So chapter 19 continues as the two angels arrive at their destination. They show up in the city gates of Sodom in the evening. Only a few hours after their visit with the patriarch, they, they arrive here um, and they're generously welcomed by Lot. You're going to see a lot of parallels. We'll bring it to, we'll kind of tie it all together at the end, but just keep Abraham in mind. And then as a secondary note, keep Noah in mind as well. These two stories uh, are parallel with, or this story is parallel with both Abraham and Noah. So Lot jumps up and, and he greets these visitors. And, and you might be surprised, we ought to be, to see Lot sitting at the gate of Sodom. Now, thinking back to chapters 13 and 14, we know he picked to go that direction. And then in 14, we know he even lived there. But to be in the gates of Sodom is to be a leader in the city. This is to, this is to sit on the city council. This is to be one of the elders in town, to be making wise choices and, and uh, being a governor, as it were, one of the governors. And so Lot's sitting there as an exalted member of Sodom, which we know from chapter 13 is an exceedingly wicked city. What is he doing there? Why is he doing this? But he's got this exalted place. So it's not shocking exactly, but it's certainly a development, right? Maybe like, I don't know, an old friend that found out, got married to that girl that they like dated. You knew they were dating maybe once or twice. And you're like, oh, well, that's new. It's not like maybe surprising, but I thought I would have heard of that before. So Sodom, he's now found in the city gates of Sodom. And much like his uncle, Lot treats his visitors with utmost respect and with generous hospitality. As it is evening, uh, he invites them to stay in his home for the night. This is the culturally expected and common, but also generous invitation. Um, as is, ironically, uh, the acceptance of the invitation. You're supposed to accept someone's invitation to stay the evening. Instead, in verse 2, the angels decline and reveal their plans to spend the night in the city square. Not only is that maybe a little bit rude, but Lot knows that it's a really, really bad idea. You can't stay in the city square in Sodom. You'll die if you stay in the city square in Sodom. And so he insists, you know, he's like, you guys really aren't from here, are you? You don't know what this place is. You don't know who these people are. You don't know what they do. And and you need to stay at my house tonight. I, I insist, strongly insist. We might use the, the idiom, he twisted their arm, right? He, much like they're going to twist his arm later, he twists their arm and says, you're coming with me. You're staying in my home. So why did the angels decline? Uh, probably because they were simply doing their job, right? This was the reconnaissance they had been sent to do. Well, we're going to see exactly how bad Sodom is. This is the cry that's gone up to the Lord against them. So we're going to do our examination. So uh, they, but they follow Lot um, as he strongly insists. <clears throat> the comparison already has begun in a positive way. Lot actually begins out uh, in, a, in a very uh, upright light. And his comparison to Abraham is strong. He saw the visitors. He made a move. The, all the language is almost identical. He bowed to the ground. He addressed them respectfully. He called them sirs or lord. He requested their presence at a meal. They both washed their feet. They both invited them to stay until they needed to depart. And they both quickly prepared a meal. They've done the same thing. Now, some have pointed out that unleavened bread, which is one of the things that he serves them in the feast in verse 3, uh, that unleavened bread is quicker and easier to make, therefore maybe uh, implying that Lot was a less generous host. But so far, I think that Moses is intending to paint Lot in a very positive light, actually mirroring the patriarch. He's doing exactly what he should do. He's a benevolent host. 
Now, as an aside, <laughs> this is probably not at all what's happening, but if the angels had just finished a Middle Eastern feast with Abraham, I can imagine that they were telling Lot to stop. Like, nope, we are done. We are full. We do not need any more. Perhaps they're angels and that doesn't make a difference and they're enjoying the Middle Eastern meals as much as they can. I don't know, but um, in all seriousness, uh, they, they, they go to Lot's home and Lot's doing well for himself. He is respected and he is a respectful member of the community. Perhaps the only one, but he is respectful. And that ends scene one. He takes them to their home and his home and, and bakes a meal for them, cooks a meal for them. Now scene two, what happens? The meal's over. Everyone's kind of winding down for the evening, perhaps finishing their cup of wine or brushing their teeth, getting ready for bed, whatever they're doing. But they have yet to lie down. They have yet to go to bed. And then in, in the quiet of their evening, a voice from outside breaks their silence. Hey, Lot, Lot, hey, we saw you had some travelers over for dinner. And Lot just, I knew this was going to happen. Shh, let me take care of this. So he looks out the window, one, two, three. Uh, there's a lot, a crowd. He's surrounded everywhere. He scans, shadowy figures are lurking. And, and another voice, hey, we know they're in there. Several more chime in. Open the door, Lot. They can come out here or we can go in there. And you can imagine cat calls or laughter supplementing these ringleaders' demands. Give them over. We just want to show them a good time. It's dark. It's disturbing. As this crowd, this mob surrounds Lot's home. Again, Lot, props to him. He is courageous. He's the leader of the home. He says, I'll take care of this. Steps outside and closes the door, right? Creating a barrier between himself and his guests and really offering himself no way of escape. There's some courage there. And he begins this threefold entreaty. <laughs> he starts with a polite request. Please, my brothers, don't do this great wickedness. It's not exactly a strong request. But it's a request, nonetheless. And they, uh, it didn't land. Their quest doesn't land. The mob is, is determined to do what it wants to do. So in his desperation, Lot pleads for a second baffling, wicked option. And that is that he offers, he begs, this gang to take instead his two virgin daughters and to do with them as they please so that his hospitality will not be infringed, so that he will be an upright member of the society, so that he will do what is culturally appropriate in defending his guests. And that's the reason that he gives immediately after. That's a, his sad excuse for the shocking offer. He has to protect his foreign guests at all costs. After all, isn't that why they're in the shadow of my house? Isn't that why I didn't let them stay in the city gates or out in the open square? If they were in the open square, then it's the open square, but this is my home, and you cannot come into my home. You cannot do this. Hospitality demanded protection, and to violate that would so egregiously mean that this was a completely lawless city. But... Come on. <laughs> That's a sad, miserable exchange. And Moses intends our indignation, right? How dare he? What is Lot doing? He's detestable. He's hoping, pleading with this crowd of men and boys to be incentivized towards sexual violence by the innocence of his two daughters. Lot is not only jeopardizing their safety and their innocence, but he's, he's jeopardizing their very lives, and maybe less significantly to the story, but he's also jeopardizing his hope for a heritage. He's not going to have grandkids. They're going to die. All for the sake of strangers. This is despicable. And it obviously violates everything about Yahweh and the mantle of fatherhood that even that humans understand. We know that's so wrong. These two vulnerable ones in his charge are carelessly offered for two strangers. 
So his courage turned immediately to cowardice, and his apparent strength, and let me handle this, uh, was just detestable. It was, his strength was abandoned. So in an even darker than twist, the excited crowd rejects the offer. That's not what we want. That's not what we're here for. That's dark. In fact, they're furious with him. How dare you offer us that? And, and the truth spills out. Sodom hates Lot. They don't like him. Get back, they scream. Well, who do you think you are? You're not from here. You're a foreigner too. How dare you sit in our gates? How dare you pretend like you're some righteous judge from the, you know, the nephew of Abraham, blah, blah. We don't care. You're a guest too. Get out. In fact, because you've done this, we're going to treat you worse than we were going to treat those two strangers. You're going to die. They violently threaten him and then they move toward a physical assault as they seek to seize Lot and break down the door. And there, this mob mentality is alive and well and they are coming for Lot. They surge forward, prepared to seize him and to batter down the door. And at the last moment, door opens Four angelic hands reach out, pull Lot in, slam the door, and then by some miracle, perhaps even like an angelic flash of light or some, by some means, the angels strike the Sodomite gang of boys and men with blindness so that they become disoriented and no longer could find the door. Now you would think, <laughs> if someone just threw a flashbang, <laughs> then you're like done right? It's like, okay, boys, time to go home. Nope. They grope around in the darkness trying to find the door until they're wearied. That's the Sodom mentality. Determined toward detestable sins. Before we move to the next scene, um, let's pause just for a moment and address the, the topic generally of homosexuality in this in this account. So when the gang of men and boys approaches Lot's house, they ask Lot to bring out his two apparently, uh, apparently male visitors, right? They're angels. They've taken masculine human form. And they do so, they, they, they ask that they would bring them out, that Lot would bring them out so that they could know them, which is a common Hebrew phrase uh, for sexual interaction. That's what they want to do. In addition, Lot refers to the gang another option, and it's a sexual option. Right? So he, that, that, that's the theme, certainly, of this, uh, of this event. Now, what that's led to is that it's led many people to identify the sin of Sodom as homosexuality. In our world today, <laughs> many even professing Christians, so like a progressive Christian, uh, who claims to believe, love, study the Bible, right? That's going to be their, their, their words. And they've developed, their words, exegetical arguments in favor of LGBTQ inclusion in the church, right? So how would they look at a text like this? So they're going to examine not only this text, but all of the kind of relevant texts, most of the relevant texts, not normally Genesis 2 and, and 3, but ones that identify homosexuality. And they... And they uh, skillfully dismember them is what they do. And even abusing the original language, using the original languages to their advantage. You see, when someone comes using your own vocabulary, right, like, well, we need to remember the context and we need to go look at the Hebrew and we need to go look at the Greek and we need to look at authorial intent, that's confusing. Like, hold on, you don't, no, you don't believe in context and original languages and authorial intent, but you're using those words. That's confusing. So the, the normal today progressive Christian belief would be this. This is a screenshot from a website. So the non-affirming message is that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, at least in part, due to the fact that the men of, city, the, men of the city wanted to engage in same-sex behavior. That's a non-affirming message. The affirming message is that Sodom and Gomorrah addresses gang rape. That's what's wrong, right? Never says that a 
consensual, loving, covenantal same-sex relationship is wrong. What is, where is that in the text would be their thought. That's, uh, that's manipulative. That's tricky. And when they come with that language, it's even, it's even more difficult. But this argument is deceptive because it's partly true. <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah does address gang rape. That's wrong. That's detestable. It's used as the prime example of what Sodom's doing. That's what it's saying. And with, uh, with a slight adjustment, you could maybe agree to the first one too. But he says, at least in part. Now, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, at least in part, due to the fact that the men of city wanted to engage in same-sex behavior. That is true. If you took out at least in part, well, maybe you could make an argument, I suppose, if you want to, that it was something different, something greater. So like pride, arrogance, okay? Maybe you could do that. But this is deceptive. Now, to deny the non-affirming message is untenable, particularly because of, of the wording, right? So they're, what they're saying is that same-sex behavior had absolutely no part in God's motivation to destruction, and that's undefendable. You can't say that. The text doesn't say that. The Old Testament as we've seen in Genesis, it builds a robust and a fortified case that marriage is intended to be a covenantal union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That's established strongly in the first chapters of Genesis. And so you would have to bring evidence, not that Genesis 19 doesn't address same-sex covenantal union, but that there is a spot in Scripture that promotes it. And you cannot do that. That, is not, that doesn't exist. So according to Moses, this chapter unveils sin at every turn when God's design is dishonored. Within the entire chapter, not just this homosexual mob, but the despicable father and the incest that's going to follow. When you abandon the design, it's sexual sin everywhere. It's not just this. So I think we could, uh, I wouldn't maybe say that the sin of Sodom is homosexuality. That's why God did it. Certainly a part of it. And that's what this is talking about. That's what's described. But we can be careful. We can be even moderated in our language. Ezekiel uh, 16 says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. It's a piece of the puzzle. That doesn't mean it has to be the whole puzzle. So the entire disposition of the city rages against Yahweh <laughs> and his principles and his commands and his morals as represented by their treatment of Lot, who did in a highly broken fashion represent the morals of God to the city. They oppressed, crushed, tore, violated, twisted, snatched. It was a supremely violent and arrogant city from the old men to the young boys, the whole thing. So, uh, we can talk about that more afterwards if you want to discuss it, uh, but just beware the deceptive and the false teaching, even when the language that we use is even brought to the table. Um, just be aware of that. Okay, so the third scene of the night, uh, the men have just been blinded, and they're wandering around in the dark. Meanwhile, the angels, who have ironically just revealed who they are, right? They just uh, rescued and they blinded. Okay, these aren't just guys. This, we, we now know who they are. These are supernatural uh, beings. And, uh, and so they, they detail the purpose of their visit. And this is kind of the, the center, the middle point of the, of the story. They warn Lot to get out with everyone that he loves uh, because of verse 13, for we will destroy this place, right? Previously, it was an analysis. They're going to go look and they're going to go see and they're going to go, uh, well, they've looked and seen enough, right? It's time. So the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So there's the warning, uh, center of the story. This place, these people, we're destroying it all. If you want to live, leave now. Uh, as we just observed, the wickedness is so great, so pervasive, all right, from the old men to the young boys. And just as the blood of Abel cried out to the just judge, right, so now... The victims of these grave crimes have pleaded with the just judge. The patient one is done waiting. It is time. So, 
Lot's family situation here is, is an interesting one, and it's not completely discernible. We don't really know how many sons and daughters and everything that he had. The angels mention uh, a son-in-law. That's singular, interestingly, and then Lot's going to turn to his sons-in-law. But he, they say son-in-law, sons, daughters, whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. Now, it's my understanding that they're not actually talking about specific people that they know. They're just saying, if you have someone, get them and get them out. So whoever it is, I don't care, cousin, uncle, mother, father, like anybody, even friends, right? He says, uh, whomever you have in the city, go get them out now. So here's Lot's chance to assemble his ten righteous <laughs> that Lot had interceded for. <clears throat> he can't do it. Um, uh, it's my personal uh, pr preference in the text. I think that Lot just has his two daughters and two sons-in-law-to-be, two betrothed, uh, and that he probably doesn't have any others. He's got his wife, his two daughters, who are virgins, and his two betrothed uh, sons-in-law. So, Lot immediately goes out and speaks to his plural sons-in-law, who had married the Hebrews open there to also being who were betrothed to marry, who were going to marry his daughters. And he said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. So Lot gets to pass on the warning. Now what do they do? They don't, it's uh, not quite right to say that they think he's joking. They mock him. They laugh at him. It's the same root word as Isaac that, that uh, Moses used in the last chapter and that God used, right? Sarah laughs and Abraham laughs and God laughs. He names, he names Isaac laughter. Now Lot's sons laugh, but it, ha it is, it is a, a different word and the word is intentionally in your face. It's laughing at you. It's mocking you. They belittle him. <laughs> okay, okay, Lot, they're coming for us you moral majesty, we're going to stay. The morning dawns. The angels urge Lot to hurry. <laughs> this section this is an interesting scene, and I think it's probably, if I were to guess, the least familiar in the narrative. We, we know the first part. This might be a little bit less familiar. At dawn, which is when the first light appears in the sky, right? It's before sunrise. The angels urge Lot out of the city. And our thought should be, what? <laughs> Why are you in the city? What are you doing? Why haven't you already packed your bags and left? You were warned. You had the angels of death in your house last night, and they said, get out. And now the language, it doesn't have to mean this, but it certainly could mean when they say arise, they're waking Lot up. I don't know if or how he slept after all of that, but he's not doing anything. What are you thinking? How, if you are a righteous man, how are you not gone yet? And yet they do, they say, arise, take your wife, take your daughters, here they are lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he yet lingered, he doesn't get it. He's not going, even when they give him his wife, they give him his daughters, and they say, okay, that way, here we go. Fire and brimstone coming out the door. He can't do it. They have to grab him. They hold his hand. They twist his arm. They twist not only his arm, they twist his wife's arm. Not only his wife's arm, they twist daughter's one and two's arms, and everybody has to be handheld out of Sodom. That's absurd. And as soon as they get them out, after Lot had almost had his, his entire family murdered by a Sodomite gang last night, now all of them are looking longingly back at the city. Oh, I do really love it here. I'm going to miss this. What? God is being merciful to a dimwit. That's what's happening. He's righteous, but it confuses us as to how. 
And once they're out of the city, it gets better. <laughs> once they're out of the city, the angels are perhaps the, the Lord may, have, may be the one that showed up here. They gives a parallel A-B-B-A command. This is one of, the, one of the first and most clearest poetic examples. And I can't help but just think and imagine that like, okay, we're going to give you a ditty. <laughs> Here's your motto for the next 12 hours, right? And it's four lines and there's four of them. And you can just, I'm not saying this is what Moses is saying, but you can just imagine them turning to them and being like, okay, lot, line one, escape for your life. Got it? Escape for your life. Turns to his lot. Don't look behind you. Don't look behind you. Got it? Daughter number one, don't stay anywhere in the plane. Okay? Keep going. Daughter number two, escape to the mountains. If you guys don't do this, you're going to be destroyed. So there's two positives and two negatives, right? Escape uh, for your life. Don't look behind you. Don't stay in the plane. Escape to the mountains. Now go. And Lot turns around and decides that this is a good time to talk about it. He turns around. He's like, you know, I have been thinking about one thing. I don't really like the mountains. I'm scared of the mountains. I, first person pronoun, Lot, his wife, and daughters, I might get hurt in the mountains. What? He's like, could I just ask a little thing, just one little thing? If I could have your favor, just a little thing, it's just a little thing, just a little city over in that, just a little way away, like a little is all over here. Just a small request, if you don't, just, sorry, just one more thing before we go. Oh, and we're going. God is abundantly merciful to him. And he gives him the city that was going to be destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar. But no, now it's named Zoar, which means a little place. They named it after Lot. Cute. And so he goes over to his new little saved city, a little place. And they say, get there fast, <laughs> please. Because we can't do anything until you get there. The sun is now up. And there's three brief notes uh, in this fifth scene. Sun is risen and Lot enters Zoar. Good job, Lot. As soon as he gets in there, then the Lord rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities and all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. So what followed was breathtaking and terrifying. In a few short lines, Moses describes the arsenal of heaven opening and the Lord launching wave after wave of fiery space rock rain onto Sodom and Gomorrah, something that hasn't been seen before and has not been seen in the same way since. Our closest natural event might be a volcano or a meteor shower, which are some of the most terrifying of them all if you can't get away. A, B, A, B, the cities and the plain. Everything in the city, everything in the plain. All of it, done, roasted, immediately, the people, the stuff, the crops, the animals, all of it, ash. And just like that, the tension subsides in the story as the smoke rises from the land. The seamless movement from God's long-suffering to God's judgment is great and terrible. Now, the final line of the scene is unexpected, isn't it? One of the most famous of them, I suppose, but Lot's wife gets turned into a pillar of salt. Why did that happen? Seems the most clear because she disobeyed the angelic command. That they said, don't look back if you want to live. Don't look back or you will be destroyed. And she looks back. As what I believe is a reflection of her affections. Her heart is exposed. She loves Sodom. This is her place. There's, it's, good, it's very likely that she is a Sodomite woman. We don't know where Lot's wife came from, but 
very likely that he met her there and married and, and has children there too. Why salt? Doesn't say. The only uh, reasonable explanation that I've heard uh, is that in this time, in, in ancient Near Eastern warfare, after you have conquered a city, you will often burn and salt the plains. Now you make it so that it would be impossible to grow something next year. It's going to take a long time to recultivate this land. It's just like a stamp of your utter dominance. And so there's not only the destruction of the city and the plains, then God salts it. I think is, is the best explanation that we have. But we don't know. Uh, nevertheless, she is used as an example. Jesus uses her as an example uh, in Luke 17, 32. She's this prototypical character in this story. Christ encourages people to remember her example and the final judgment of which Sodom is a type clearly, constantly throughout Scripture. He says, don't play the role of Lot's wife and turn back. Don't do it. Because if you love the things of the world, you're judged with them. Right? That's, that, it's an exposure of her heart, exposure of her affections. And for all of Lot's awful deeds, he didn't turn back. He loved the Lord. And it was broken, and it was growing. I don't understand it, necessarily. But there was something about Lot that was righteous, and it wasn't in his deeds, <laughs> but in his identity. And we see that as a demonstration in the story. So keep your eyes on Christ is the warning from Lot's wife. And the final scene of the dawn returns us to the patriarch's uh, plains, the plains of Mamre, right? Abraham, he rises early in the morning. Now remember, he doesn't know any of this. The last thing he knew, he had interceded, and if there were 10 righteous, the city spared. That's what he knows. So he wakes up the next morning, and he goes to the spot where he and the Lord had spoken the day before. And he looks out over the plains to Sodom, and it looks like someone has lit a fire. There is smoke rising all over. <clears throat> like a furnace, he says. So this is a masterful literarily um, to, to return back to Abraham. And he doesn't know what's happened to his nephew. He, he has no idea that God has rescued him or whether he hasn't. And the story, to my recollection, I don't think it ever says. And I don't know that Lot and Abraham ever pass, pass, cross paths again. Um, Abraham might not ever learn about this. I don't know. So Moses makes an editorial summary statement here in 29. It came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. So God remembered Abraham. Remember back from the story of Noah. Okay, that this refers to kind of the privileged position that Abraham holds as the recipient of God's promises. God keeps his covenant obligations on his mind, and they are the basis for his divine intervention. That's why he did what he did with Lot. So the intercession of Abraham envelops the story of Lot while all that Lot has and loves is destroyed. And the epilogue exposes that sharp, sharp reality. Because Abraham, I'll just kind of summarize. We are running out of time. We have some application to do too. So uh, if the story ended at Zoar, then Lot kind of fades mysteriously and we don't know. But Lot doesn't get that privilege. <laughs> Uh, instead, Lot ends in disgrace and in shame. So to kind of summarize this disturbing tale, Lot leaves Zoar shortly. He doesn't even stay there. This place that he pleaded for, just the little city, just my little spot, my little corner, he leaves. Why? Because he's afraid. Again, his fear is driving him everywhere. He can't make a right decision. He is fearful. His cowardice even turns to fear. I don't know what he's afraid of, whether he's afraid of. He's like, it's going to come again. The angels are going to come again. There's going to be fire tomorrow morning. Maybe it's that. Maybe he doesn't believe God will keep his promise. Maybe it's that he just doesn't trust the people of Zoar and he's a foreigner there too. And he doesn't want what happened in Sodom to happen in Zoar again. And I don't know why, but he decides that the mountains are worth the risk. And so he takes his now two family members that are left and he leaves and he goes, and um, he goes to this cave, which is really a place that you either bury people or hide as a sojourner. And because they believe that they will never marry, and they know that their fiancés are roasted, um, they don't want their father to be left child, childless, and so they um, come up with a plan. 
right? And the oldest daughter contrives the plan to continue his, his lineage. Now, continuing his lineage is honorable, but how is extraordinarily dishonorable. Simple and disgusting plan, right? Get dad drunk and sleep with dad. So to Lot's shame, <laughs> the plan works. And both girls bear their father a son slash grandson. Now, Moab's name means from father, and Ben-Ami means the son of my kinsman. So they both acknowledge in their children's name the means by which their children came. From these two boys come the uh, Moabites and the Ammonites, who long had a hostile relationship with Israel. It's kind of a complex relationship. We don't really have time to get into it this morning. Um, but God ultimately does extend mercy to the descendants of Lot, to the Ammonites. Why? Because of their connection to Abraham. Because he remembers Abraham. <clears throat> Here's a quote for you from a guy named Coates. He says, The one who offered his daughter his daughters for the sexual gratification of his wicked neighbors, now becomes the object of his daughter's incestuous relationship. To be seduced by one's own daughters into an incestuous relationship with pregnancy following is bad enough. Not to know that the seduction had occurred is worse. To fall prey to the whole plot a second time is worse than ever. He couldn't get lower. And we're just left to I don't know, despise, pity a lot in his last and most painful moments where he's lost all his honor at the hands of those who you would think would love him most, but why would they if he didn't even love them? It's a really dark end. What I'd like to do is spend a few moments uh, making the comparison between Abraham and Lot and then the comparison between Noah and Lot. Um, and then we'll say a word of conclusion. <clears throat> So we noted the hospitality similarity, right? But ultimately, though they began the same, they ended very differently. Abraham's hospitality ended successfully, and he sent the men on their way. He fed them. He warmed them. He gave them a place in the cool of this day, and they went on their way. He had a nice conversation with the Lord afterwards, and it, it all went well, right? Lot's hospitality ends in complete failure. If all you've done as a hospitable host is attempt to prevent someone from being objectified and taken advantage of, and then they end up saving you and then destroying all those people. Like, it's just, it's a huge mess. He doesn't, he's not a good host. Then they intercede, immediately following the warning, right, about the judgment. Both Lot and Abraham have warning of the judgment, and they both immediately intercede. Abraham intercedes for Lot. He intercedes for the righteous. He's selfless. He's not thinking of himself. He's thinking about the character of God and about what is upright and what is holy. Lot's intercession is extraordinarily selfish. He uses only first-person pronouns. He only cares for himself. He only wants an easy life. He doesn't want pain and harm and difficulty. He should have booked it back to Abraham. That's what he should have done. He should have taken his wife and his two daughters and said, we're going back to your uncles. He didn't do that. Now, the vantage point that they share or the, not that they share, but the difference between them. Abraham is like before and after the tale, isn't he? he isn't even, he's safe. He's not even there. He's not in Sodom. He's not in danger. He gets to, like, not that he is doing this, but like warm his hands by the fire. Like it's not dangerous. But Lot is in the middle of it all the time. He's like dodging meteors, basically. Like it's not good. It's, it's very dangerous. Then you have their descendants. That's the bookend too. The, the promised seed of the woman, Isaac, right? That God's going to continue back from Genesis 3 that through this line, the deliverer through Abraham. And then what do we have in Lot? The rebirth of Sodom. That's what you have. It continued. It was a part of them. It was who they were. It's who their daughters, his daughters were. So Sodom's reborn. The seed of the serpent comes right back. Little baby Moab and then uh, the result. Well, we leave, we, who's chapter 20 about? Abraham. Who's chapter 21 about? Abraham, 22, A Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? He continues. He's the blessed sage. He did well. He heeded. He's, he's the one with whom God made promises. And so he goes on with blessing. 
Whereas Lot is a ruined fool and we don't hear of him again. There's one other time that his name is mentioned and it's only about his descendants and how God's going to be gracious to them because of their connection to Abraham. As you see the foil that Lot is and you see the conclusion of the trilogy, don't set your heart away from the promise of God. You'll end in ruin, even if you're righteous. There's a ruin that, that, uh, that Lot embraces here. Then the other one, look, I reorganized it. Can you tell? It's not the same. It's the same. So Lot and Noah. A lot of parallels between the story. The stories as a whole, right? These are both stories of destruction, very uh, widespread destruction. One of them of water, the age-old flood, and one of them of fire now in this story. Their activity is, is a little bit different. Lot, or, uh, Noah is constantly acknowledged as the righteous man, as the righteous man. And what did he do? Well, when God said build an ark, he built an ark and he obeyed like he was faithful, even as, as, in his activity as a reflection of his heart. Now, Lot's doing everything wrong. He's doing the opposite. When God tells him to do something, he doesn't. When God, when God gives him an opportunity, he doesn't take it. When he goes and tries to be courageous, he's a coward. It's just everything he does is wrong. Their family, Noah, came safely through the flood with his wife, with his three sons and, three wives, and their three wives. Lot's family is completely destroyed. Right? He escapes. He tries to bring his sons-in-law. They make fun of him. He tries to bring his wife. She longs for Sodom. He does bring his daughters, and they sleep with him. He loses everything and everyone. His, his family's completely ruined. Then you have the disgrace, right? The, the hero drinking too much, basically. And they get drunk on grapes. Noah, he was exposed. Um, his, oldest, his youngest son saw him exposed, and uh, he was ashamed. But immediately afterward, if you remember, Noah was aware of it. And he came and he cursed him. So the difference being, <laughs> Lot got so drunk that he had no idea even that he was impregnating his own daughter. That's, that's bad. And he didn't even know it. Twice. It's as bad as it gets, right? So they're completely disgraced. And then the final picture where, where God just like, and Moses just undoes Lot <laughs> is that who did God make promises to with Noah? Well, Noah, and so God remembered Noah. And Lot is the parallel to Noah in the story. But who does God remember at the end of Lot's story? It's not Lot. He remembers Abraham. And so that's an exclamation point on the account of why it is better to be inside the covenant family of God. That's why it's better. That God has been very gracious. God has loved Abraham. God is caring for Abraham. It's a, it's a beautiful end uh, from Abraham's perspective. <laughs> and a very ruined one for Lot. So, a concluding word about Lot. How do we think about this guy? Um, Peter identifies him as a righteous man. <laughs> uh, grievously vexed by the sin around him in Sodom. Right? And Moses paints him as a foiled buffoon. Um, but a buffoon hated by the wicked city and rejected by the city, and rejected even by his family who loved the city. So from the city's perspective, he was a good guy, right? And I think that's actually part of what is supposed to show us, is the darkness of Sodom. When Lot's the righteous man, that's how dark Sodom is. When the good guy offers his daughters, that's how dark Sodom is. That's kind of the point, literarily, of painting Lot in this light. But it's very it's difficult. How do, how do we kind of make sense of this? And I just want to read you, I found a really helpful kind of a character sketch by a commentator named Alan Ross. And he says this, he said, genuine faith is often hard to detect. Here was an upright citizen, Lot, right? A hospitable, generous, a leader of the community who was a judge, meaning that he would screen out wickedness from his town and advise on good living. He knew truth and justice and righteousness and evil. Yet, in spite of his denunciation of the lifestyle of his people, he preferred the good life of their society. He preferred living comfortably in the city to living in the hills where there might be no filthy living, but no good life either. The hour of truth came when the Lord interrupted his life. 
His true loyalty was revealed as godly, but in the process, his hypocrisy was uncovered. The saint had pitched his tent near the evil city, but the evil city had controlled his life. Oh, he was moral. He knew great, great evil when he saw it. He opposed sodomy and homosexuality. Ironically, though, he would sacrifice his daughter's virginity to fend off the vice of evil men. He would escape the judgment by the grace and mercy of God, but his heart had become a part of this world. His wife was just too attached to the city to follow the call of grace, and his daughters were not uncomfortable with immorality with their father. Hypocrisy was revealed by the visitation on high. As long as the Lord left him along, he would have held to his faith and lived in Sodom. Ultimately, he couldn't have both. Sodom would destroy him if the Lord did not destroy Sodom. Now, that was a helpful summary. So the final two things we'll talk about are just the, the Christological point about the seed. Okay, so this is happening time and time again in Genesis. As soon as God takes care of the seed of the serpent, it returns. It returns. It returns. As soon as the flood happens, the seed of the serpent returns through him in Canaan. As soon as this happens, this well, as soon as God annihilates Sodom and Gomorrah, the seed of the serpent returns. So we are waiting. Right? We are still waiting for the fulfillment of Genesis 3. We are still waiting for the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent and to annihilate its seed by the seed of the woman. So we're waiting for that, and that is the Christological application. Uh, Sodom is reborn, but, and it will always be until the conquering king returns. And then just the theological thought. We, we must end on this. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, young, uh, young and old in this city were set towards violence. And, and God, the theology of God's destruction and deliverance that Peter describes in Second Peter is paramount. It's premier. It's what, it's what this is about. You cannot wage war on God's judgment. You just can't do it. It will happen when and where he wants. And it's not a game. Sodom and Gomorrah, as uh, I believe it's, is, no, it's uh, in Luke, during the passage that's warning about Lot's wife. He says, Sodom and Gomorrah rose that morning. They did their stuff. They were going about their day. They weren't paying any attention. They didn't care what God said. It was a game. They could mock God. And they were condemned. So the only hope of security is in the one who bore the fire and brimstone of God on the cross. This is not only a history, it's also a warning. The flood and this story function as the prime examples in all of Scripture concerning God's judgment. It's going to happen again. Sodom and Gomorrah is coming again. The wicked people in the wicked city will mock God. And when the time is right, and the cries of his people have risen up to him to the point where he is satisfied and he is prepared, then he will return and rain fire and brimstone and annihilate evil. That's what he's going to do. So this is a story that will be told one more time. It's, not, it's more than a history. It's also um, a prophecy of God's judgment.